Amen. We come now to a time uh, where we read God's Word and we hear God's Word preached. Um, and we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We took a short break for the Easter holiday, but we are coming back to the Gospel of Mark. And before the break, just as a reminder, we looked at uh, the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth uh, by his own family and friends, and then his, his uh, training of his 12 disciples as he sent them out uh, in dependence upon him in ministry. And next week, we'll come back to Jesus' ministry in many ways. We'll look at the feeding of the 5,000. But sandwiched in between this talk of Jesus' ministry is the story or the narrative of uh, the beheading and uh, death of John the Baptist at uh, the hands of Herod. So that's our text for this morning. It's Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 29. Uh, Mark 6, 14 to 29. Hear God's word. King Herod heard of it. That is, heard of Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the disciples. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised? For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. He had, he had heard him. He was greatly perplexed. Or when he had heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist in a, on a platter, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, this is a, a gory tale, um, but it's not untrue. It talks of the suffering of one of your saints, one of your uh, servants, and it is deeply distressing. And yet, Lord, you give this word to us for our good and your glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us uh, to understand and apply these things to us today. Lord, may your spirit be at work in, in that. Um, and so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, it's a, it's a challenging text. A lot of difficult pieces to it. Um, but I wanted to start by thinking about this idea of a niggling conscience. A niggling conscience. We've all felt it. We've all seen it in others. An uneasy conscience can make it hard to sleep at night. It can cause physical ailments. It can make us avoid people. It can make us dodge probing questions. Sometimes it makes us defensive and touchy. Other times it makes us deeply sad and moody. Other times we don't even recognize uh, it for what it is because we have buried that thing so deep down uh, and yet our conscience still cries out against us. I entitled this sermon, A Telltale Heart, after the story of Edgar Allan Poe. I won't go into the details of that story. It's uh, equally as disturbing. But it's a dark tale of a man whose heart cannot bear his guilty conscience. And in the end, he ends up confessing uh, his crime to the police, unprompted. Well, our text this morning also highlights a man whose conscience is crying out against him. King Herod, who, as we will see, had John the Baptist killed to please his wife and his guests. The passage begins with an episode uh, of, of speculation as to who this Jesus person is. Some thought he was John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some thought he might be Elijah the prophet. And some others thought he might be a prophet of old. But Herod thought for sure that this was John the Baptist raised from the dead, the one whom he had beheaded. Can you imagine what was going through Herod's mind at that moment? The fear, the terror, the trembling in Herod's heart and mind when he first heard these reports? Well, the account this morning confronts us. It confronts us by calling us to consider our own consciences. After all, it is an instrument given by God, in order that we might turn from our sin and repent and believe in Jesus. But it's also a text about faithlessness and faithfulness. It's about exploring the difference between feeling sorry for our sins and repenting of our sins, as well as what it means to faithfully follow Christ, no matter the cost. But finally, it is a story about redemption and hope. And it points us to Jesus as the one who was risen from the dead. And at the end of the day, this text is about a call to repentance and faith in the resurrected Lord. It is a call to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what John the Baptist cried. That's what Jesus cried. And as we consider this call, we'll look at these things in these three ways. First, consider your conscience. It calls you to repentance and faith. Second, we'll look at faithfulness and faithlessness, or faithlessness and then faithfulness. And then finally, we'll look at the hope in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So first, consider your conscience. It is a call to repent and believe. Now, I have to give a little background on the history here. Um, we actually have other historical accounts uh, surrounding Herod um, and his marriage and uh, the events that, that around John the Baptist and uh, the historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, 
And so some information we get from him. First, Herod uh, was a tetrarch. He was one of three rulers in the area. He went by the name uh, Herod Antipas. Um, there were lots of different Herods, and they each had individual names. Um, he was the son of Herod the Great. You'll remember Herod the Great because at the, at the birth narrative of Jesus, he was the one who um, sought to kill Jesus and all the, by, by destroying all the young children, young boys. Um, he was, this is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, um, married initially the daughter of a, man, of a king named Eratos IV of Nabatea. Now, this is maybe more information than you're interested in, but uh, this king was the, the ruler of a kingdom to the east and to the south of Israel, what we might consider modern-day Iraq. It was a powerful kingdom. And he married the daughter. It was a political marriage. It was one to bring peace between the nations. But after the death of his half-brother, another Herod, Herod Philip, um, he divorced his first wife and married his half-brother's wife, Herodias, right, who also had a daughter from that marriage named Salome. So what do we have here? We have a lot of intrigue, a lot of interesting historical events. But this is where John the Baptist enters the story. John the Baptist had called Herod to repent. He called him specifically to repent on account of the marriage, the text tells us. And so Herod threw John in prison, partly because Herodias was looking to kill, uh, kill John the Baptist because he was against uh, the marriage. And why did, why did Herod... I've already indicated that there's at least one reason, but why else did Herod throw uh, John the Baptist into prison? First, his marriage was already a point of contention. In fact, his wife fled back to her father, his first wife, that is, fled back to her father in Nabatea, the king of the Nabataeans. And for obvious reason, that king was upset with Herod. And in fact, later on, will send an army to attack Herod. Um, and Herod ends up getting defeated in a battle and then has to call in some help from the Romans. It's a big issue, um, his marriage. Um, it was a politically tenuous situation. And then in the midst of that, you have this very popular uh, Jewish, Jewish preacher, prophet, this holy man, who is stirring up the crowds to repent and believe. And so he sees this as an unstabilizing force. And, and, and if we know anything about the Romans, what they like is stability and peace. And uh, this was a threat to his stability and peace. So he puts John in prison. But I've already mentioned the second reason he puts John in prison was to protect him, uh, to protect him from his wife, his new wife, Herodias, who had a grudge against him, who wanted him dead because of this, uh, his preaching. Um, and so there was a protection. He was under guard of, and, and his wife couldn't get at him. And then there's a third thing here why he, I think he was thrown in prison. And, and maybe not so much a reason to be thrown in prison, but maybe a side benefit, if you will. Herod was intrigued by John. There was something about his preaching and teaching that attracted and perplexed Herod. The text says that he gladly listened to him. Anyway, what we see here is a very complex figure. We see a complex figure full of contradictions. Um, on the one hand, he was a typical Roman in power in the first century. Uh, he did whatever he pleased. Uh, if he wanted to divorce and get a new wife, he did. If he wanted to throw a party with lewd dancing, 
so be it. If he wanted to engage in spiritual discussions with a holy man, why not? If he wanted to imprison someone to protect them and then later turn around and execute them, let it be so. He was someone who did what pleased him, no matter how contradictory those things might be. In contemporary parlance, he followed his heart. Isn't that, isn't that the word of the day? Follow your heart, a Disney call. But on the other hand, he was a man who feared people and was often controlled by them and what they thought of him. So on the one hand, he did whatever he wanted. But on the other hand, he was deeply afraid of people. He imprisoned John because of fear of the masses and fear of giving more reason for his ex-in-laws to come after him. His fear of the Roman powers that he might not have things in control. He was also controlled by his own fleshly desires as he watched his stepdaughter dance before him. He feared both his wife and his powerful friends and was induced to commit murder against his own better judgment. So on the one hand, he did whatever he pleased, whatever his heart's desire. And on the other hand, he was controlled by his fear. He was a man that was controlled by the lust of his flesh. And I think with someone like Herod, it's easy to be disgusted by him. In many ways, he is disgusting. And yet, at the same time, I think we can see a bit of our own fickleness in Herod, prone to follow our hearts no matter what ill path it might take us down, controlled at times by our fleshly desires, and afraid of what others will think of us, desiring above all things to be well-received no matter the cost. And isn't this how sin works? It entices us to be gods, to do whatever we think will give us the most pleasure. Then sin shackles us. It imprisons us and drives us to do things that we don't want to do against our better judgment. And sin tells us that at the end of the day, the most important thing in life is the praise of our friends and colleagues and bosses and peers and husbands and wives and children. And we would all be lost on that same path of destruction that Herod was on, but for this God-given instrument of the Spirit called the conscience. <laughs> Interesting about the conscience is that it's often more felt than heard, right? It's more felt than heard. We feel it deep in our gut. We're in the trembling of our hands or in the sweat of our brow or in the terrors of the night. Like a pin prick, it wakes us and it causes us grief. Now, there are two things that we can do with it. We can heed it, we can listen to it, or we can dull it. I, I wanna consider the ways we dull it. Um, there's the most blatant and obvious way that we dull our conscience. And, and I think we see this in Herodias, uh, Herod's wife, second wife. Uh, we can simply harden our hearts against the conscience, even to the place where we change uh, our conscience and, call, and get our conscience to call good evil and evil good. Herodias uh, had this kind of seared conscience. 
We aren't told how she became so seared, but she has no moral qualms about sending her daughter to dance before her husband in a way that would entice him and the others that are there. And she seems to have no moral qualms with beheading a man whom she dislikes because he speaks ill of her and of her marriage. Maybe, maybe at first it was her conscience that drove her, right? It was, it was that very thing that drove her to hate John the Baptist even more so. But then she actively crushed it. She responded to her guilt by piling on the sin. There is a, an, an, a, what I would call an unverifiable illustration, so I just beg your pardon, but the illustration works even if I don't know its origins. Um, but I was told once that in Navajo, Native American tradition, that they saw the conscience as a triangular wheel by the heart that would spin, and as you were doing something or thinking something that was wrong or doing something that was wrong, it would spin, and it would, that, that those edges on the triangle would prick the heart. They would hit the heart. But the more that you do something wrong, the more those edges of the triangle would wear down till it spun freely. The triangle would become dulled. I thought that was a, kind of an interesting illustration, and I tried to find uh, some record of that, and I, I was unable to. Um, but James 1 puts it in another way. He says in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Friends, there is a, a, a real danger in dulling and searing the conscience. Remember, it is there for your good as an instrument of God's spirit. Don't despise it. Don't double down on sin and so silence the instrument of God. As James says, it will eventually bring forth death. But there's a second way that we can dull it, that uses less brute force, if you will, but ends in the same place. It's to ignore. It's to ignore the conscience. It's to feel it, to agonize over it, to, to weep over it, to have these feelings, and yet to persist in sin. This is Herod. He feels badly about the affair. But in the end of the day, that's where it ends. I think for many of us, we often confuse repentance with the feelings of guilt. We trick ourselves into believing that if we feel badly enough, then our sin is covered. But friends, repentance isn't primarily a feeling. Yes, deep feelings of grief and regret attend to it. But repentance isn't fundamentally a feeling. It's a turning away from sin. It is heeding the conscience and fleeing from our sin. But it's not a fleeing into the abyss of guilt and shame. It is a fleeing into the loving arms of Jesus and to our Savior who forgives, the one who cancels our debts, who wipes away our guilt and shame. In other words, it is a turning from sin to faith in Jesus. This is the call for all of us. Repent and believe. Don't ignore the conscience. 
Don't wallow in your sin. Turn from it and run to Jesus. And this brings me to my second point, faithlessness and faithfulness. There are at least two main figures in this text. Now, of course, there are other figures, but there's two that kind of stand out prominently. One receives the most attention, and it seems a bit strange because he's the bad guy, but it's Herod. He gets a lot of attention. The other who receives very little attention is John the Baptist. One who is faithless, Herod, and one who is faithful, John the Baptist. The text focuses mainly on the faithless one, as we've already dwelt on. And in the end, he was a weak-willed man who couldn't look past himself. He heard the gospel. He knew his sin. He was intrigued by John's call to repent and believe. He was a seeker in many ways. But at the end of the day, he was unwilling to turn from that sin and to believe. And I think he stands as a warning to all who would hear the gospel and turn away. If you're here this morning with us and you are intrigued by the gospel, if you're here this morning and you know, you know your heart, your conscience has pricked you, you know your sin, don't cling to the sin. Don't cling to your autonomy and desires. They will ultimately rule your life. And they do so without care. And they finally lead to destruction. Don't, don't dance around faith. Um, I did youth ministry for quite a few years, and I ministered to many kids in different churches, some who followed Christ or following Christ, others who aren't or who didn't. But one young girl has been seared into my mind. Uh, she was somebody who danced around faith. She came to our youth group every week. She was friends with all the kids. She would engage in the, 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 the discussions that surrounded uh, youth group and all the, all the biblical stories and everything that we would talk about. And yet, she didn't want to give up on the world. She was always on the edge. She wouldn't kind of commit or profess faith. And one time, I, I expressed it very clearly, and she stopped coming for a while. I reached out to her, and she came back, and she still danced around faith. After I left that church, she went off to college, and I went to another ministry. And about a year or so after that, she died in a tragic accident. She had danced around faith. A lot of guilt for me wanting her to hear just as John the Baptist was proclaiming repentance and faith. And yet, we can't dance around faith. Being close to Christians in the church or being spiritual is not the same as trusting in Jesus. It's not the same as turning from your sin and resting in Christ's finished work and following him as Lord. Herod was faithless despite his but John the Baptist was faithful. We see little of John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark. He's mentioned in Mark 1 at the beginning of the Gospel, and he's mentioned here in this section, and one other reference to him. But we know from the other Gospels that he was faithful. He is one who leapt for joy in his mother's womb upon his first in utero meeting with his cousin, the Lord Jesus. 
He faithfully lived his life out as a prophet, calling God's people, as well as Gentile rulers like Herod, to turn and believe. He pointed to Jesus as the Son of God and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he thought nothing of himself, saying, Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And later, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And later, I am not the Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus said he was the greatest of the prophets. And that's where he stood. He stood as the, the forerunner to Jesus. And yet, and yet, like the prophets of old, his role was not to gain glory, but to point to the glorious one. And so John willingly laid his life down in order that he might point people to Jesus. John the Baptist was faithful to the end. And it cost him everything, everything to follow Jesus. Jesus will say in a couple chapters, in order to gain your life, you must lose it. Pick up your cross and follow me. Friends, Faith is clinging to Jesus above all things. It's saying, wherever he leads, I will follow. Whether it is into the jaws of the lion or the prison of Herod, or simply it means saying no to all the glittering gods of gold that our world pushes on us. It is saying Christ is more, is greater John's hope was not in this life, but in the life to come, life in and through the Lord Jesus. And this brings me to my final point and conclusion, hope in the resurrected Lord. This is an account of Herod and John the Baptist, but ultimately it is an account of Jesus. Remember, it was on account of Jesus' ministry in the first place that this uh, story, this narrative of Herod and John the Baptist was retold, it was on Herod's conscience being pricked that he thought John the Baptist had been risen from the dead. John, after his death, is laid to rest in a tomb by his disciples. So it begins with this ministry of, of John, and it ends with John and a gruesome death lying in a tomb. We see a parallel, don't we? A parallel to Jesus' own passion. But there are more parallels that we see than even that. John the Baptist is like his forebearer, Elijah, preaching truth to power against Ahab and Jezebel. But like Elijah, whose ministry was primary calling to repentance, he was the lesser of the two prophets. Elisha came after him. Elisha, the one who performed great miracles, who proclaimed salvation, so John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, the one who came with great power, bringing salvation. Herod worried that John the Baptist was raised from the dead, but the truth is, the one who came after him was greater than him. This one would suffer at the hand of Roman authorities as well. He would even suffer at Herod's hands as he was mocked and beaten. He would suffer at Pilate's hands as well. 
and he too would die a gruesome execution. But not just at the behest of these wicked Gentiles, but at the behest of his own people. He too would be laid in a tomb. And this is as far as the similarities go. John the Baptist was not risen from the dead. At least he hasn't been risen yet. But Jesus broke the power of sin and death, and by his death, our sins have been washed away. And by his resurrection, we have hope eternal. And so we can repent and believe because this hope does not disappoint Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. John the Baptist was not looking to the things that were seen. He was not looking to gaining popularity and prestige in the world's eyes. He was looking to the things that were unseen, and so he willingly gave his life for his Savior. But he was laid in a tomb, and there's hope for him in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, do not lose heart. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Let us continue by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit to die to sin, and to live to righteousness. Let us run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, faith, the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame. Friends, as we look at this text, a lot of gruesomeness and tragedy faithlessness. Don't miss the hope of the resurrection. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose again from the dead. Cling to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, help us to live a life of repentance and faith, turning from sin, clinging to Jesus, resting in that finished work, knowing that our sins are forgiven, that though they are like scarlet, they've been washed and made white as snow. Lord, what a glorious truth that our sins are, in your mind, taken as far as the east is from the west. Remember no more. Help us remember that when you look on us, you see Jesus, the righteous one. So Lord, help us. Help us by your grace to be faithful, to follow Jesus wherever he leads. For we ask these things in his name. Amen.